Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I first want to acknowledge that I'm feeling a little awkward. Are you? It is an awkward thing. I mean, just a little over a month ago, you said goodbye to a beloved pastor and friend, and suddenly here's this, this old guy shows up and uh, is going to be a pastor and sort of take things up for the next few months. It's awkward. But, listen, your leaders have contacted me and they called me to be here at this particular time. And I felt out of my nice retirement that, yeah, God was calling me to do that. So, awkward or not, here I am. So let's get started. When I was thinking about uh, the first few months here, I thought one way of getting into the story that relates to our story is to think about Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, that old story way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Because I think that entering into that story, we will find ourselves in our story as well. Because it's a universal story of the relationship between God and His people. So we're going to start by reading from Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, where Abraham and Sarah get into the story. <clears throat> Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of, of uh, I'm sorry, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and in all and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, 
Abram took his wife Sarai and his his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that he had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. By the way, those were slaves. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the place of the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. The word of the Lord. Dear followers of Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews calls Abram one of the heroes of faith. And I suppose he was, in many ways, a hero of faith. But as you'll find out, when we actually read the story, there were lots of doubts and lots of struggles. And lots of times, Abram took things into his own hands rather than really trust in God. Because let's face it, human faith, our human faith, is a very fragile thing. It's up one day, it's down the next. It's not all that dependable. But here's the thing. This really isn't a story about Abraham. This is a story about God. In fact, that's true of the entire Bible. It's not about the people that we meet in the Bible. It's about God, about God, how God operates, how God brings about His purpose through frail, anxious, dithering people like you and me. That's why these stories from the distant past are important. And that's why we discover over and over how these stories fit into our lives, how they fit into our understanding of God, how they fit into our relationships with each other. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are, of course, the backdrop of where this story begins. They present the grand and terrible story of creation and fall. The bright, the bright, shining promise of human beings made in the image of God to rule the earth, who then betray God, betray each other, and betray the earth that they have been given. It's the story of that first couple and how they turned against God and wanted to be like God. It's a story of violence and anarchy. It's a story of the chaos that was pushed back with creation, that rushes back into creation with the destruction of the flood. It's a story of empire, where people build a tower to the heavens to rule the earth and to take God's place. And here's where we begin our reading for today. 
we move from stories of deep ancient times into our history. Now think of this as a kind of a TV documentary. Beginning right here in chapter 11, verse 27, the camera begins to zoom in. First it zooms in on this place called Ur. Now Ur was, was the, 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 the center of Sumerian culture. It was a great city for ancient times. And you can almost see the hustle and bustle of the streets and the, and the culture that was coming out of it. And then the camera zooms in on one clan, the clan of Terah. And then it moves really close and focuses on one couple, Abram and Sarai. Well, the utterly amazing thing, I believe, in this story is that right here, the eternal purpose of God boils down to this one couple. God puts all the chips right there. They're the plan. And then the whole thing grinds to a halt at verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now, it's tempting to read that little sentence as just sort of a gynecological fact. She didn't have babies. The problem, of course, could just as well have been with Abraham. We know that. And it was a tragic thing. This was a time in which everything depended on having a male descendant. Its failure was the failure to realize one's destiny. Everything was tied up in that. And that's why they use the term barren, barren. It's a barren place. But this couple's childlessness is more than just a mere fact. It's one of the great themes of biblical history. It's so interesting. From here on out, again and again, you will read about barrenness. And it starts right away. Not only Sarah, but then Rachel, Rebecca, Samson's mother, Manuel, Samuel's mother, Hannah, all the way right down to John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. Every one of them were barren. So we're not talking about some little genetic glitch here. In the Bible, barrenness is pregnant. <laughs> it's pregnant with meaning. It says... This is the way of human history. It is hopeless. There is no foreseeable future, and no human power can make it happen. But the good news is that barrenness is God's favorite condition for beginning a new operation. God's work does not begin in the bright, shining moment of human potential. God doesn't go around saying, oh, there's a nice family there. Look at those cute little children and look at their great pedigree. I'll bless them. No. God's work begins in the night of shame and hopelessness, of barrenness. It begins with Abram and Sarah's anguished tears. The one thing that they must do to seal a future for themselves is impossible. They are barren. 
And so the story goes, doesn't it? So often the journey of faith embarks from some barren, dead end in our lives. Personal failure, chemical addiction, stalking, disease, divorce, graveside tears, miserable sins. And then there's us here this morning, a congregation in rather high anxiety, faced with some rather stark choices, wondering what in the world is coming next. These are the barren moments. These are the human dead ends in which God specializes. Suddenly, everything changes. To this barren couple, without a future, comes a call. Go! Go! The first verse of Genesis 12 is one of the tremendous, great turning points in biblical history. Out of barrenness, out of hopelessness, out of this dead end, God intervenes with a call. Now, this call is not an immediate answer to the problem, as you can well see. Sarah doesn't suddenly become pregnant. Oh, well, here we go. In fact, as the story goes on, it will take a ridiculously long period of time before Sarah ever gets pregnant. No, God says, move out, move on. I'm doing a new thing. And what a call it was. Now, I want you to imagine how that move must have felt for Abram and Sarai. All this barren couple had in the world, all they had was the clan. This is the, the, the building block of ancient society. It was the coherent center of their lives. Leave them, God says. Go. Where? Oh, God says, I'll show you. In other words, you'll know it when you get there. Every tearful goodbye to the kiss to the clan, every step of that journey toward the West is a journey into unknown territory. So if you're a theological scout spying out the Lord's game plan in history, it goes something like this. If God looks for barrenness to begin his redeeming work, he then issues a call into a new future. Samuel heard it. Elijah heard it. Mary heard it. Jesus issued it. Come, follow me, he said. And they left their homes, their families, their work. And they went on this great journey with Jesus. The characteristic call of God moves people away from the familiar, from the known, from the predictable, into something new. And in this new territory, they must trust not in themselves, not in the way things always are, but in God, in God alone. I've seen it happen over the years in so many, so many ways. The family that, that welcomes a teenager refugee from Africa into their home as a foster child. The woman who 
walks into her first AA meeting. The 14-year-old who, who leaves home to go to scrub toilets in a camp for teenage kids from the inner city. The pastor, like Stefan, who says, I got to follow my heart and go in a new direction. And now, we've got to decide where we're going as a congregation. What is God calling us to do? What is the right thing to do? What will it look like? What are the consequences? Where do we go from here? These are agonizing problems. We struggle with them. We trust in God, but we don't always know where God is going and how it will turn out. But when God calls, it's more than just some stab in the dark, some lurch into unknown territory, because with the call, God issues a promise. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning with that promise. We'll do that later. I just want to emphasize that fact that when God calls, God promises. To Abraham, the promise was, to say the least, extravagant. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. Out of you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Wow. From our vantage point, we can now see how that promise is part of a larger promise that's fulfilled finally in Jesus Christ and in his church. But, of course, Abraham didn't have a clue about any of that. For him, it was simply a promise of God's blessing and of God's presence. But a promise, folks, is a very fragile thing, isn't it? We all know that. On the one hand, we live by promises all the time. We live by promises in our marriages. We live it in our economic life. We live it in our church life. On the other hand, these promises completely depend on the faithfulness of the one who gives the promise. That's all Abraham had, a promise. No children, no land, no tangible prospects whatsoever. Just this word from God. Who was this God? Is this God trustworthy? So the whole story of Abraham that begins here is the drama surrounding the promise. It's threatened by human failure. When Abraham and Sarah often prove unfaithful themselves, it's threatened by continued barrenness. It's threatened by outsiders like Pharaoh. It's even threatened by God, who says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and take him to the mountain of Moriah. As you continue to read your Bible, the drama of the yet unfulfilled promise continues right down to that dark moment when the mangled body of Jesus of Nazareth is laid in a tomb. God's work in our lives hangs by that thin thread of a promise. When tragedy strikes, when sin and failure dog our path, when doors close shut and when hope grows dim, we hang on God's words. I will be with you. 
I will bless you. In all things, God works for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or those three simple, astounding words, you are forgiven. Ultimately, faith means grabbing hold to and clinging on to the promises of God no matter what. Now, the text closes with Abram and Sarah pictured as sojourners. They're aliens. If this story were made into a movie, I'd accompany this part with Willie Nelson's nasal rendition of On the Road Again. Abram and Sarah move around here and there. The text forcefully reminds us that there were Canaanites in the land. And in fact, the names of the places where Abraham settles for just a little while are known by scholars as the great worship centers of Canaanite religion. And here's the thing. At each of these Canaanite shrines, Abraham builds an altar to God, to the Lord who called him. And each time God confirms the promise, I will give you this land. The text is meant to tell us something about the people of promise. We are sojourners, or as one theologian put it, we are resident aliens. To be a Christian is to join Willie Nelson on the road. When I read this picture of Abraham building an altar at these pagan religious shrines, I, I thought of an important book by Jamie Smith from Calvin called Imagining the Kingdom. He shows that we are surrounded with what he calls secular liturgies. Once you get the idea from him, then you can see these secular liturgies everywhere, from TV shows to, to our consumer instincts. He brilliantly maps out how a shopping center is actually a secular temple with its own subtle liturgies that draw us in. These secular temples, these liturgies, form us more than we ever think. They form us into the values and the ideologies of the Canaanite gods of our age. And we even carry these liturgies around in our pockets and purses, these little devices, right? We got Facebook, and we got TikTok, and we got... Instagram, we got, what, X, I guess it's called now, right? And they make sure that our minds are locked in to the secular liturgies that are all around us. So Abraham set his altar up right at the door of these pagan shrines of Canaan. And that's what we do every Sunday when we come to worship. We're building an altar to the traveling God in the midst of the settled gods of Canaan. Our weekly worship around pulpit and table are not just sort of, I don't know, nice comforting rest stops along the way. We are entering into a space called the kingdom of God where that is truly the center, the central reality of all things. It's where we bow down before God in, him we, in whom we live and move and have our being. It's where we stake our future on God's promises in Jesus Christ. And we sang these hymns this morning, these wonderful hymns. My heart was so deeply stirred 
like I was stepping out of this world into the real world of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. That most misunderstood book in the New Testament, Revelation, right after John writes the, seven, the letters to the seven churches of Asia, it says that a door opened and a voice called out, come up here. And what John witnesses through that door is a staggering vision of heaven and of his worship. And the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive power and honor and glory for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. John gives this picture, you see, of, to, 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 to these poor, persecuted, struggling churches in Asia. Every Lord's Day, in their paltry little house churches, which look so weak, they are actually joining the worship of heaven. They are gathering around that great white throne in their worship of God and of the Lamb. They are entering into the truest, deepest reality of all, the reality of God. So, like Abraham and Sarah, we barren people build our altar in the midst of this strange land to remember who we are and where we're going. And then, fortified by the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hit the road again with the promise that Jesus is with us as our guide and as our way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, God of Abram and Sarah, be with us now today and help us to see even in our barrenness, the barrenness of our lives, of our faith, of our life in church, that you are with us and you call us to follow you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that your call is always new, always fresh, and always, always reliable. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.